Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please do find a Bible and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. We're returning to our series in 2 Samuel, and we come this morning to chapter 11. You'll find it on page 262 in the Black Bibles, 262, or 308 in the large print. You'll see the enlarged print for the large print reference. And that's page 308 if you're following in that Bible. Let's hear God's Word together. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, in moments like this, we confess to you our humble need our need to see ourselves in your living word, and more than this, oh, so much more than this, to see Christ our Savior. So help us, we pray, to listen, to hear, to receive, and for Christ to be formed in all our hearts. In his name we pray, amen. On a global scale, poverty may be reduced, but will it ever be eliminated? Certain injustices may be addressed, but will there ever be a community in which no one is treated unfairly? Some diseases may be cured, but will sickness ever be eradicated? Does anyone realistically hope for a world in which lies are no longer told, conflict between people is unknown, greed no longer drives the economy, selfishness no longer dominates human behavior? Do we even dare to dream of a world in which trust is universal, peace is everywhere, all relationships are harmonious, generosity is displaced greed, and kindness is the mark of human interaction? Those are the words of John Woodhouse, a commentator on 2 Samuel. Can you dare to dream this morning, friends? Can you dare to dream of a world at peace with God and a a world at peace with itself where all is well, 
I think we struggle to dream, don't we, about that? For here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the most famous of stories about a most sordid affair. This is a disaster, isn't it? Verse 3, is not this Bathsheba? Isn't that amazing phrase? Is not this Bathsheba? What one possible meaning of the name Bathsheba is daughter of an oath. That's what it means, daughter of an oath, daughter of faithfulness. How incredible. Her name means child of faithful love, and David is about to make a mockery of all oath-keeping. Is not this Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Oh, friends, do you feel the disaster in those words? Think of it, sire, the servant is saying, maybe cautiously, perhaps fearing for his life as he says this to David, um, Eliam and Uriah, you know those two men that are members of your elite bodyguard, O king? Men who would give their life to protect you? Sire, she's the daughter of one of them and the wife of the other. Do you, do you hear it? In other words, David, she is off limits to you, not yours. Next word in the story, verse 4, so. So David sent messengers and took her. Isn't that astonishing? Do you, do you feel how cold that is, even though the fires of lust are burning hot? It's not, but David sent messengers. It doesn't say, yet, nevertheless, David sent messengers. She is not yours. So David sent for her and took her. This is a disaster. Let's look at this together, friends. I want us this morning to see the setting here. And then I want us to see the sin. And then I want us to see the setting again. We're going to come back to the setting. All good stories have a setting, right? A stage on which they happen. Where, <clears throat> where and when and how does this unfold? That's the setting. But then the way the sin unfolds. And then we're going to come back to the setting again. For friends, brothers and sisters, this is not just a disaster. This is a great disaster, a terrible disaster. And what does God do with great disasters? Just look at the setting with me. This drama plays out on a stage in Jerusalem, doesn't it? One day before the cool of the evening, temperatures rise. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. It's not strange language to us, is it? Verse 1, Ukraine this past week, exactly a year since the war began. What has the news been full of? The spring offensive. Who's going to gain the upper hand as soldiers go out to fight in springtime? It's just... It's just warfare wisdom, isn't it? The world over, you do not send your troops to freeze to death. 
You know, the, the setting here is a, a standard time of war. Do you notice how comprehensive it is? He sent Joab and his servants and all Israel. Everybody has gone to fight. And it is victorious warfare. They ravaged the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah. Like everything else in 2 Samuel up to this point, everything is going according to plan until the last five words of verse 1. The last five words of verse 1. And it is the first word of those five words that packs a punch. But, but, David remained at Jerusalem. The kings have gone to war, but this king, stayed at Jerusalem, stayed at home. This is not the first time David has remained while others go to fight. No, he's done that before, but this time there's a but. It's the word that makes the next four words flash at us in neon lights, isn't it? Something is going to happen here because David has chosen to do this. How true it is, friends, that success so often leads to failure, that success often precedes a great collapse. The the greatest lapses, they they don't always come in the valley, do they? Sorry, I mean, they they don't always come on the mountaintop, do they? They come in the valley. The mountaintop of success where all is well and everything is in order and everything is happening the way it should be. No, the lapses come after the struggle where you now have the power to send others to work for you, to do the work that you used to do. Verse 1 is a king saying, I'm tired. It's me time. Our sins so often surface, don't they, when we are not where we are meant to be with the people we are meant to be with, bearing the responsibilities we are meant to shoulder and be entrusted with. We have turned in on ourselves. It's interesting that that verb at the end of verse 1, David remained at Jerusalem. It could be translated, he was sitting at Jerusalem. David was sitting in Jerusalem, and look what happens to the sitting king, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when he arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Do you you see the contrast between where David should be and where he is? His troops are ravaging and besieging. His troops are in hand-to-hand combat. They are in a life-or-death struggle, and their king is sitting in Jerusalem. He's stretching after resting on his bed, and now he's strolling. The contrast between the warrior men and the resting king, he he is not where he should be. He is far from danger, and he is in the greatest danger. Somebody in our church family just this past week sent me a great article, lovely article. It's on the Desiring God website. It's called Live Against the Drift. Here's what it says. The human soul is designed to wax or wane. It is designed to drive or to drift. So friends, do you know in the moments of greater preoccupation and in your moments of weaker resolve, do you know where your soul tends to drift? 
Here's what it says. One mark of Christian maturity is learning that none of us ever passively drifts towards Christ. Not even after we've followed Him for years or even decades, the currents of our still sinful soul, weathered by constant waves of temptation, still pull us out to sea. Isn't that true? We cannot sluggishly float in place. We're either swimming towards God or drifting away from God. This is a setting, isn't it, of drifting away from Christ. It comes from comfort and mind-numbing success. It comes from absolute power corrupting absolutely. And it leads to a terrible sin. Here's the second thing to observe. Look at the story sin. David saw from the roof a woman bathing. Look at it, verse 2. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. She returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. One of the things we're meant to see as we read that, as, as, as we read that story of terrible steps being taken, one of the things we're meant to see is the progressive stages of sin, aren't we? That the way it takes root and then works its way out in terrible destruction. It starts in verse 1 with the king abdicating his royal responsibilities, and then the next step is sight, seeing. That is what lights the blue touch paper for this man. He saw. He saw. And instead of that being the end of the matter, there's the first choice David has to make in that moment. Do his eyes bounce off this woman, or do they soak into this woman? There's the first choice, and he chooses sinfully. Verse 3, he sent and inquired. Seeing leads to sending for her personal profile. Do you know what David is doing in verse 3? He's Googling, isn't he? It's what what we would do today. His messengers are his search engine. He sees, he inquires, he gets the information about her, and now he has another choice to make. What does the messenger say in verse 3 when he comes back? Put, Put all of those words in verse 3 in the messenger's mouth, into a symbol. What is the symbol? It is a wedding band. She is married, sire. He has another chance to back off and repent, doesn't he? Oh, the mercies of God along the steps of sin. He is not plunged headlong into it without warning. And so he has a choice. What will he do? And again, he chooses wrongly. He sent for her and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Oh, the sin is terrible. Do you know why I think that little word so at the start of verse 4 is so awful? So he sent. She's not yours, sire, and she can never be yours. She's bound by covenant oath to someone else. So David took her. Do you know what's going on there? 
in that very information that should have warned David of her, her name, daughter of an oath, her relation to Eliam, his bodyguard, her relation to Uriah, David's fighting man. In those very things, the messenger is signaling that she is off limits. Do you know what David hears? Opportunity. Not off limits, he hears opportunity. In the very red flags, he sees his chance. For where are Eliam and Uriah? At war. While he is lusting for what belongs to them, for all he knows, they are bleeding for him. The men are not at home to stop him and to protect Bathsheba. That's why the so is so chilling. Bathsheba is joined to men who are not present. So David took her. Some of you may know, perhaps you have heard this over the years, some of you may know that some handlings of this story can, can tend to put the blame on Bathsheba here. What, what business does a beautiful woman have disrobing within sight of the king? Is she tempting him? Some of you may have heard some kind of sermons or handlings or read, read books. This text becomes part of a warning to women to not lead men astray because of the male vulnerability to visual stimuli. Something that's true, of course. I mean, that's obviously, isn't it? It's obviously what happens in verse 3. But look, I wonder if you notice by the end of verse 5, there is not one single emotional reaction or feeling from any of the characters at all. In fact, all the way through to the end of the chapter, there is not a single emotional reaction. We are not told who felt what. We are not told how somebody, other, somebody else's actions were received. We are just told what they did. And by the end of the story, there is only one comment by the narrator about somebody who felt something. There is only one judgment passed. Look at verse 27. When the mourning was over, after Uriah is dead, Bathsheba has been mourning her dead husband. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It is an amazing thing that it is a story of lust and betrayal and adultery and murder in that story, the only persons whose emotions we are told about are God's, how God feels. The whole responsibility for this whole sorry affair rests on David's shoulders. Listen to this. Isn't this true? Here's an Old Testament commentator, Walter Brueggemann. He, he, he captures the tone of the text. Listen to this. The action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay, verse 4. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. Then the woman gets some verbs. She returned, she conceived. The action is so stark. There is nothing but action. There is no conversation. There is no hint of any caring, of affection, of love, only lust. 
David does not call her by name. He does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter in verse 5, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived, but the telling verb is he took her. He took her. The, the, the simple fact, right in front of us, verse 4, the simple fact is that Bathsheba's bathing was not a matter of immodesty, was it? It was actually a matter of holiness. See what verse 4 says? She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That the laws of Leviticus mandated that after a woman's menstrual period, there should be ritual cleansing. And she is cleansing herself. Literally, verse 4, she is making herself holy. No, it, it aggravates the sin, doesn't it? Right here at the very moment that she is making herself holy, at that very moment the king is doing something so unholy. And right at the end in verse 5, we discover why that mention of her bathing from her uncleanness is so important. She has conceived with David and David alone. Her pregnancy could not have predated this act of adultery. No paternity test needed. David is the father. Oh, friends, what a disaster. In the space of just five verses, David has immersed himself in a sin that it will now forever be associated with his name. Isn't that true? David and Goliath, yes, we know that. David and Mephibosheth, even better. But David and Bathsheba, there it is in the annals of history forever. Oh, friends, for all of us today, male, female, there are lessons, warnings, there are helps here, aren't there? Look, look how great sin so often plays out in little incremental steps. Small actions which lead to the next small action which lead to the next thing until a line is crossed and the conscience is seared and then eventually the dam is breached. We know the truth, don't we? Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Men, brothers, we need to cultivate bouncing eyes, not soaking eyes. Eyes that see beauty and then do not do whatever we know verse 3 looks like today, that do not do inquiring about the woman. We know what it looks like, don't we? A Facebook search, an Instagram check. I agree with the pastor who says to the men on his staff team, a friend of mine, he says to the men on his staff team, if you have got a lady coming to see you for counseling in some context and you are looking forward to it and she is not your wife or your daughter, then ask somebody else to see her. Why would you be looking forward to this? What, did you catch her perfume in the hallway when she asked if she could see you? It's not because women are a threat. 
It's not because it is wrong to look forward to meeting some woman, but every man knows there is looking forward to it and there is looking forward to it. Oh, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is so deceitful that we do not know how deceived we are. We're going to see this next week. But friends, this is not just a disaster, is it? This is a great disaster. Think about the setting again with me. Not, not now verse 1, but the big picture setting of where we are. For, for who is sinning here? It is not just a man, not any man, but God's man. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The king, God's king. This was the man that God had chosen, the man that God had given to his people in place of Saul, the man to whom God said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Don't we get to chapter 11 and say, really? With him, with this man? Not anymore, Lord. Surely it's over, right? Friends, the reason 2 Samuel chapter 11 is so bad, why the disaster is so great, is because it is chapter 11, not chapter 1. In other words, the fall of David follows the monumental rise of David. Epic success. Up to now, he had been righteous and faithful. He had been kind and good and generous. He was successful in all he did. Your kingdom come is what God's people pray. And with David, God's kingdom on earth seemed real, didn't it? You could touch it and taste it. Remember chapter 8, verse 15? So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to his people. That's why this is not just a disaster. This is a great disaster. So much so that most commentators say, and I think we are right to do this, to say that this incident almost is like a second fall in the Bible. It's like a second fall all over again. Oh, oh the tragedy into a world where there is so much beauty, so much godliness, so much closeness to God and love for God. Into that world this happens. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3 verse, verse 6? Let me read it to you. Genesis 3, verse 6. What does this sound like? So when the woman saw that the tree was good, beautiful for food, and it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired, she took and ate. Now here into Israel's beautiful kingdom, David sees that a woman was good to see. And he desired her, and he took her. Oh, friends, the tragedy of this chapter, here's what somebody has said, one of the most difficult lessons for human beings to learn is that we are not up to the task of ruling the world. We are not up to the task of ruling the world. Again and again, we are deceived into thinking that someone or something new will be the solution. Doesn't your heart break in a way for all three candidates in the SNP running for the highest office in the land? the hope, the optimism, the, the promise of a new beginning, a new dawn. And it never is. 
So here is the real question for us this morning. Here's how Pastor Alistair Begg puts it. He puts it like this. I think this is exactly right. It is what 2 Samuel 11 asks of us. Is it really possible? Can it be true that God's purpose in history can be set forward with this man, King David, now so unlike Jesus, but so like us? Can God's purpose in history be preserved, displayed, kept, honored with this man? It's it's a mess, Lord. David is so unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is so like me. He's so like you. What we touch eventually turns to ashes in our hands, doesn't it? The, the, The very best that God gives us, we seem to only break and damage and tarnish. The beautiful things that God has given to us, and not least the most precious, wonderful gift of sex. And some of us are feeling this right this very moment today, aren't we? What, what possible good can come from the disaster of sexual sin that has steamrollered my life? That's what some of us are feeling. Some of us have sexual histories as long as our arm. Some of us have sexual pasts full of tremendous damage that others have done to us. Some of us have visited harm on others. And all of us, all of us without exception are sexual sinners. We all know what shame is. We we don't read about it in a book, do we? We know it. Do you remember Monica Lewinsky after the, the affair with Bill Clinton, the President of the United States? After that affair in the White House propelled her into the the public eye the glare of the world's media. Many years later, she wrote that the shame of the whole thing stuck to her skin like tar. She said, I just cannot get it off. Cannot be clean again. What does God do with disasters? Your disaster, my disaster, Is it really possible that God's purpose in history can be set forward with this man now so unlike the Lord Jesus and so much like us? The answer, friends, is yes. Yes, always yes. A thousand times yes. In a world of disasters, He is the God of reversals, isn't He? Of taking what is broken and mending it and fixing it and taking what is dirty and washing it clean, taking what has been cast aside as shameful, unworthy to be touched or even looked at, and instead bringing it inside and saying, you are mine, giving what is shameful pride of place in his family. Is it possible? I want you you as we finish just to turn forward to Matthew's gospel chapter 1. Page 807, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, page 807. Do you know the gospel of genealogies, the gospel of family trees? Here it is in 
Matthew chapter 1. Friends, never let your eyes glaze over names at the opening to a gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, this king, this man, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Look down to verse 4. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. As you read through this genealogy, there are only four women mentioned, four women given place here in this long list of male names, four women who live in the biblical story under a cloud of sexual or racial shame in some way, a cloud of sexual sin perpetrated against them or involving them. Tamar in verse 3, triangulated between powerful men, she is raped by her half-brother. Rahab, the prostitute. Ruth, the Gentile outsider. Look at verse 6. Doesn't that just get 2 Samuel so exactly right? Bathsheba is not named, and she is not called the woman like she was to David. No, she is honored. She was the wife of Uriah. Uriah. Here in Jesus' family tree, Matthew says, I want to remind you that David took a woman who was not his. Oh, there are no skeletons in the closet here, are there? There is no concealing of the dirty laundry, no, no pretending that everything is okay. It is all out in the open because Matthew wants you and me to know, friends, that this son of David has come to save his people from their sins, not come to get his people to hide their sins. He's come to save them from them. How do you know you need a Savior? You know you need a Savior when your sin runs all the way through your family history. I like to think of Matthew chapter 1 being like one of those family ancestor programs. You know that you see in TV, a celebrity sits down with somebody who traces the family tree, and they discover to their astonishment they have a rapist in the family. Or they have a grandmother who worked in the sex trade. That somebody in their family was conceived in rape. They discover that a great-grandfather was an adulterer and a murderer, as well as being a king. It's all here in Jesus' family tree. Wonder of wonders. Do you remember what Hebrews says about Jesus taking flesh, the, the eternal son of the Father's love, in all his perfection and beauty? He takes frail human flesh and comes as one of us. What does Hebrews say? As he takes flesh and comes, he is not ashamed of us. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Friend, today, whoever you are and whatever you have done, if you are His, He is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. King David fails the hero test, doesn't he? Fails it terribly. 
but Jesus never did and never will. Precisely because he had never participated in the sins of his people, he gives himself for his people. What should Adam have done in the garden when he saw, turned, and walked? What should David have done on the roof as he saw? What should you and I have done in those dark corners of our lives? One and all, we should have said to our heavenly Father, here I am, I have come to do your will. And only one man, only one man has done that. Instead, we see, we take, we break. Jesus and Jesus alone said to his heavenly Father, here I am, I have come to do your will. He offers his perfect life to God on the cross, his whole perfect royal life. His offering is a perfect sacrifice because he lived a perfect life. Oh, friends, I want to say to you today, is it really possible that God's purpose in history can be set forward with this man, now so unlike Jesus and so like us? Yes, it can, because he shows us how much we need a Savior. And He gives to us through His family a Savior who is not ashamed to call us family, to make us His. Amen.